One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Sarah Ellis, and this is the Squiggly Careers podcast, where every week we discuss a different topic to do with work and share some ideas, actions, and advice that we hope will help you to navigate your squiggly career with confidence and a bit more control. This episode is part of our fourth Ask the Expert series, and we're covering a really great range of topics, including uncertainty, influence, storytelling, and leadership. In this episode, you'll hear Helen and I in conversation with Bianca Miller-Cole and Byron Cole, a bit of a dream team together, all about success. Not just success and learning from when things go well, but also what we learn from where things are harder and the mistakes that we've made. And they're such an interesting duo because not only do they work together, they're also married and their lives are very intertwined. So they've got some really fascinating examples and things I think we can all learn from regardless of whether we're running our own business or working in a massive multinational. And all of our Ask the Expert series is supported by the Uncertainty Experts, a three-part interactive documentary which is designed to increase resilience and decrease anxiety. Um, I took part in the pilot and I'm going to take part again in series one because it was so good the first time. I'm going back for more. And I can tell you it's like no other learning experience. It's really unique. So if you have got the time to get involved, I'd really encourage you to give it a go. If you do want to take part, you can sign up to be part of the series in November now. We'll add a link into the show notes. And if you use the code squiggly, you get a bonus discount too. And if you want to get a bit of a feel for what the interactive documentary might involve, Listen at the end of the podcast because there's a short clip and a bit of a snippet from one of the uncertainty experts sharing their personal story of overcoming uncertainty. So listen out for that. So Bianca, Byron, thank you so much for joining us today on this Squiggly Careers podcast, Ask the Experts special episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, yeah. I'm really looking forward to diving a bit deeper into your book and your perspective and your ideas. And I wanted to start actually with your final chapter in the book. I was really struck by a quote that you started your chapter on success with, which was from Arthur Ashe, which I'd not come across before. And it's success is a journey, not a destination. The doing is more important than the outcome. And I just wondered when we think about success generally in our careers and within the context of squiggly careers, how do you both think about success like for yourselves and together? Because we've talked before on the podcast about kind of maybe letting go of what we sometimes describe as like the shiny objects of success and some of the trappings of success that are really easy to be swayed by and to chase. But I sensed in the book that you were encouraging people to kind of think about success in a perhaps in a different way to that so perhaps you could talk to us a bit more about that 
So first of all, I 100% agree because we wrote it right. Success is definitely a journey. And how do I define success? Well, everyone looks at success in a different way. Some people it's financial, some people it's goal-orientated. So for me, when I look at my success, it's about doing the things that I love doing with the people that I love doing them with, changing people's lives whilst doing it, and getting a financial remuneration at the same time. For me, if I can cover that, I've won. I'm happy. Which is probably why I love mentoring so much, is because I can do all of that. I work with Bianca. I help people start, grow, scale, and develop their business. At the same time, they are changing their lives, their families' lives. They're putting themselves in positions that they would have never been able to put themselves in. And at the same time, whilst I make an income in other ways, more so than I would from mentoring, but I still get a financial remuneration. And all of those things, priceless. For me, that is what I call success. Yes, I've sold properties, I've sold businesses, I've done all these various different things in my journey, I've won awards. But that, for me, when people say, are you successful in what you do? Absolutely. I am doing what I love with the people that I love and it's paying me an income at the same time and I'm changing people's lives. How about yourself, Bianca? When you're thinking about success in a month or in a year, do you have certain timeframes that you think about success or do you very much focus on present and in the here and now? I think there is that feeling sometimes when you achieve something, you're then running on to the next thing. You're not taking that moment to absorb that you've been successful, you've had a moment of success, but I think it's definitely a journey. So for me, I write really clear goals and every time I achieve that goal, I'm like, okay, great, I've done it, move on to the next goal. And that's where I'm kind of defining my success is, okay, in that moment or in that year, what are the things that I want to achieve and have I achieved them? And a lot of that is associated with how much impact I can have on other people. So when I looked at, I sat down one day, I looked at my businesses, you know, personal branding very much, How do I help people understand their personal brand and how that can enhance their career trajectory? When I look at business mentoring, how can I help someone with their business and mentor them so their business becomes financially viable and successful and so they can focus on their version of success? And so I think it's always, how can I make sure I'm happy? And Byron, you're you're absolutely right. Happy with what I'm doing, happy with the hours I spend doing it. I've got a great balance and I don't mean equilibrium. I just mean some sort of semblance of balance. And I'm working with people I love and I'm changing people's lives and perspectives. And I think that for me is success. And you've got to celebrate these wins. So the flip side to success is failure. And I feel like we can't talk about success without talking about failure because it's an inevitable part of the journey. We talked about some of the shiny moments and the high fives at the end of the day. What has been a moment where it has felt like you failed? Just to bring that to life for people, but not just with the story. What did you learn from that failure that's helped you to succeed in a, in a different way? I think the, the idea of failure is really interesting. We cover it in the book because I think we, we have a strong fear of failing in the UK specifically. Mm. I feel like in America, it's like, oh, you failed, you're bankrupt, your business didn't work, when are you starting again? Here, it's <laughs> like, you failed, okay, go and get a job, or you failed, okay, well, you know, how do you pick yourself back up? And I actually think it's not about thinking I failed, that's it, it's about thinking that's a lesson. It's an opportunity to learn something. So as you said, when you fail, what did you learn? I've had various failures over time, although I don't like the word, various failures over time. And I think one of them was certainly in my first, maybe 18 months of starting my first business. 
I had started out with my savings pot. I had a bit of an investment from a family friend and I had done various things to try and get this business off the ground and they hadn't all worked and I'd wasted a lot of money, time and energy. And I remember maybe 18 months in thinking, okay, well, now I'm earning far less than I was in my career. <laughs> I'm now having to use my credit card to kind of live and sustain some sort of lifestyle. So I felt like I'd failed. But at the same time, I thought this can't be it. I didn't leave as much as I knew in starting a business, I could always go back and get a job. I was employable. That wasn't going to be a problem. I didn't start to fail. I didn't start to just say, oh, well, 18 months is too hard. I'm going to stop. And I had to think, okay, what am I going to do? I now have to really bootstrap this business. I now have to get out there. I do have to network three, four, five days a week. I do have to be online and offline and on the phone and on email and really make it work. So it taught me a lot about resilience and overcoming those issues of rejection and those obstacles and the steps you have to take to keep yourself motivated, even when times are hard and when things don't look like they're working. And, you know, nine years later, the business is still going. So it's the illustration that sometimes you just have to work through it. I really like that idea that failure is not a full stop. It's more like a signal rather than a stop. It's a signal that you might want to do something different or try something out in a different way so that you can move forward. And what about you, Byron? Has there been a moment where you've kind of had that failure, inverted commas, but it's helped you to move forward? Absolutely. So I had a business that failed. I invested all my money into a business. I was still at university. I was broken property deals, had a great income, invested all my money into an estate agency, and that business failed. I left with nothing other than a knowledge literally left with nothing other than knowledge that learning experience or that failure allowed me to start my first business by myself which I actually sold but also to this day I have so many contacts from that first business who give me opportunities who give me so much more that I would never have learned and I learned it was like a crash course I literally learned everything about the property industry it was an estate agency. I was a sales negotiator, the lettings negotiator, the sales manager, the lettings manager. I was the property manager. I learned everything, which then, and the first business was a property services business. So we helped landlords and estate agents and people were buying and selling their homes with services that they needed, like EPCs, floor plans, photography, all the things that you need when you're buying or selling your home. And without that experience and that failure, I wouldn't have started that. And to this day, I still get opportunities from people within my network that I met from that experience. So absolutely, the, the failures definitely are a learning experience and knowledge. And at least sometimes you just know, don't do that again, right? And I was really interested when I was reading the book, you share some examples of some very famous people, people like Lady Gaga and Jim Carrey, who've used almost a combination of two techniques together to really help them to be successful. So I would kind of summarise these two techniques as visualisation. So really thinking about in the future, what would you like to be? What would you like to achieve? Which is interesting when we kind of talked about you've got to balance that between you know, not being too future focused that you're not in the present, but this idea of visualisation and how powerful it can be. And, and it's a really important and, you can't just do the visualisation and then hope for the best. Or certainly my understanding reading it was you do the visualisation and then that needs to prompt positive action in the here and now. You almost create a kind of conscious bias towards actions 
that are going to then help you having been clear about that visualisation. And the example I think you gave in the book, or one of them, was Jim Carrey writing that cheque. I think he wrote a check almost to himself, and you, you'll tell me if I've got this wrong, for like $10 million and being like, that's how much I want to get paid for a film. And then actually a couple of years later, that was genuinely how much, that was like his fee for the next film that, that he was making. So I just wondered if you could describe, if somebody was listening now, how could they go about starting that process? What would that look like? Because I think those are very inspiring examples. But tell me a bit about how this would work. So if I'm sitting listening now and I'm thinking, oh, that feels like a really interesting idea, this visualisation and then using that to prompt action in whatever job I'm doing, whatever career someone's in, how can you break that down a little bit for people in terms of what could they do? Absolutely. So when we looked at it in the book, we said a visualisation isn't just about the kind of physical, tangible material items. But if we use a material item as an example, just to make it really easy, if, for example, you're saying, OK, I want to drive a particular car or I want to drive or buy a particular house, it's important to not just visualise and think, oh, what would that car look like? But actually think, OK, does that car exist? If it does, what is that car? Rather than picturing in your mind, I think it would be blue. It might be a saloon or a hatchback. Like rather than going through that process, okay, find the car. What is the car that you want? You go onto a, you know, auto trader, whatever. You find the car. You say, okay, that's the car. That's the one. So now you have a better understanding in real life terms of what that car is. You know what you're working towards. You then know how much it costs. You then can work out if you're gonna pay for it upfront, if you're gonna pay for it monthly, what does that look like for your finances? Without having that knowledge of what that car is, you're just kind of in this mystical world without any real idea and appreciation for what it's gonna take to achieve that goal. And so we then take it one step further. You found the car, you found it online, great. Well now actually, why don't you go and see it? Why don't you go to the showroom and book a test drive, get behind the wheel and take that visualization into a a place where real time, you've got your hands on that steering wheel, you know how it feels to be in that car. So now you can think, okay, well, now I've got that feeling. What are the actionable steps I need to take to make it a reality? And so that's where we take visualization from being an idea and being a dream to being a physical item or asset that we can actually purchase. And then we take it to that point where you feel yourself behind it. And that will then help to propel you to making it a reality. And I think it's so important to take those active steps because sometimes it can feel quite wishy-washy. When you think about the laws of attraction, you're like, oh, the laws of attraction, you put it into the universe and it appears. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't just appear. It does require you to actually do some work and to actually take some steps to make it happen. In the book, we talk about what we did with um, buying our house. We both wrote our goals. We wrote them separately. And then we came together to look at our goals and we said, oh, actually, a new house is on our goals together. We had a beautiful three bed house, nothing wrong with it. But we had both had aspirations to change the house that we were living in. We hadn't had the conversation. We just looked at our goals like, oh, it's the same goals. What do we do? So we went online. We looked for the house. We had no idea how we'd buy it or how we'd get it. <laughs> and then we started looking at houses, went around and we found one and we made it happen. But if we hadn't had that conscious thought process that then went into okay what does this look like okay well what do we need to do what's the mortgage situation how do we pay for this what steps we wouldn't have gotten to that stage and I think it's so important to take it from dream to tangible item visualizing it and then asset so in the book one of the chapters is all around goal setting and we have talked a little bit about kind of those aspirational goals and how you can use visualization to help you one of the things that I think is really important when people are thinking about success is how 
whilst that stuff's really appealing and attractive, that long-term stuff, how they can make sure their everyday actions are taking them towards it and they have a way that they can have everyday goals that get them towards their longer-term aspirations. Are there some things that you're kind of talking about in the book or that you have done in your own career that really help you to have that kind of attainable everyday sense of achievement with your goals and that also connect you to that more kind of aspirational long-term vision for your future? Yeah, absolutely. So we love goal setting. We teach goal setting. It's one of one of my favorite things to talk about. And yeah, goal setting is definitely a process. But first of all, we need to have clarity. So sometimes we say we have goals and we don't have clarity on on what the goals are. So I always say, make sure we have absolute crystal clear clarity of what your goals are. It should be like placing an order and sending it to a factory in another country and it comes back manufactured. So we need to be so detailed and specific and clear because sometimes it's like, I want to be rich or I want to lose weight or I want to be healthy. Like these are not measurable goals. Like how can anybody, I always say, your six-year-old child, nephew, niece should be able to tell you that you achieved this goal or not, right? So some of the things we talk about in the book naturally progress you in terms of creating a clear process for goal setting. I'll just give you talk about a couple of different things, things that we don't think about when we're goal setting, right? So we say identify the obstacles and circle the number one thing and number two things. So what is stopping you from moving forwards? What are the obstacles? Then we talk about like, who do we need to have involved? So what stakeholders do we need to have involved to help you move forward? Work on the top two. What is the number one skill set that you need in order to, for you to move forward or that's stopping you from hitting this goal? And then we think about why have we not already achieved this goal already? They're just like just a handful of parts of a process for one goal. And if you can imagine, if you go have 100 goals, just lock yourself in a room for a day and just do this for a day. The clarity that you'll have is incredible. And sometimes you don't have to do these things yourselves. You can, you know, utilize your team, your staff, your partner, whatever it may be. But just that process of having a process naturally progresses you forward. And I find that is so powerful. Now that I've learned and created a process and studied other people's processes and programs, I'm like, oh my God, literally anything that I can dream of or I can have because there's a process behind it. Okay, what what is the number one thing? I mean, you say you're buying a property. Okay, it's the mortgage or whatever. It, there's always a solution for everything. And when you look at like, the, you know, who do you need to have involved in the process and everything else, it becomes so easy and so crystal clear. And we use that not just for goal setting, but just for normal tasks within the business. Okay, well, why can't we move forward? Okay, these are the obstacles. Okay, who do we need to have involved, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the way that we use goal setting to move ourselves forward. And definitely something, we teach this to our mentees and we send them back. They write it down physically, you know, the power of writing it down physically, et cetera. But we get them to write it down and send it to us before we would hand it over when there was no COVID. But now, now they post it to us and we send it back to them six to nine months later. And some of them are like, oh, my God, I've hit so many things on this list. But, yeah, such a powerful tool. So we know loads of people listening will have ideas for businesses. I think everybody has an idea for a business and probably an idea for a book, in my experience. But what often stops us, particularly, I think, from starting businesses is that worry about will I be a success? Will I be successful? And I was reflecting before our conversation today and thinking, 
I think one of the things that held me back from spending most of my time in Amazing If, so making that leap from my corporate career to Amazing If, I held on to this idea of like, well, my success is quite intertwined with the organisations that I work for. That fear of failure that you talked about, Bianca, in terms of, but will I be successful as an entrepreneur? I don't think I know what that looks like. I've never done that before. I don't know many other people who do it. I don't think I'll ever describe myself as an entrepreneur. And all of these things are kind of chattering around in your brain. And so if somebody has got that thought, they've got an idea, so they've either got a niggle, they've got a fully formed idea, a half formed idea, and they're trying to figure out, should I just launch it and go for it? Should I start to test it out? What would you advise and suggest for people, given you both started actually numerous businesses, so you really are the experts in this, you've got that thought, what's that process that you both go through when you go from, I've got an idea, to action? What does that look like? And then we're all going to copy you. So I think <laughs> one of the um, the things you have to do is really sense check that the solution you're trying to offer is a solution that works for a real problem. And I say this because sometimes people go about starting a business because they think there's a burning problem that they have faced, but actually they haven't sense checked if other people also have that problem and would be willing to part with their hard earned money to pay for that solution. So I think that sense checking process is really important. And what that does is that makes you have to go outside of your circle because your initial circle always tell you it's a great idea, you hope. But they're your circle, they're your supporters, your raving fans. But it requires you to go outside of your circle and look a bit further and say, okay, well, who is my target client and demographic? Okay, let me go and ask them. Let me have a conversation with them. Let me network a bit more. Let me go to a few events and mention this idea and see how many people actually think, oh, that's interesting. I'm interested in that. I could do that. And I think that then takes you to that next step of now thinking, okay, how do I make this happen? And that might mean engaging a mentor like myself and Byron so we can, you know, give you the active steps to take. It might mean buying some books. It might mean starting out and going on those of YouTube, whatever you want to do. But now you have to think, what are the active steps I need to take to make this happen? And am I going to do this as a side hustle while I maintain my career or am I willing to take that leap of faith? Do I have enough money, support and so on to make it happen if I do take that leap of faith? And how is that going to work for me if I make that choice? And I think that's a really important part of that analysis. Yeah, I think I was reading that 80% of the businesses that do fail, because the stats are always terrifying, aren't they? You'd never start a business, I think, if you looked at the stats, because it's like loads of them fail, loads of them fail within the first year. But if I've kind of understood the research correctly, it is often because they've not done that testing that you just described, Bianca. They don't know if there's supply and demand kind of match. So you've maybe got an idea and it might be brilliant. It just might be that people are not prepared to pay for it. Or it might be brilliant for a really small group of people, but it's not going to grow enough to be able to sustain the income that you need. And I, I think when I reflect back on Amazing If, and I don't think we had any master plan and certainly not in the way that, that you two would have in terms of your experience. But I think the one thing we got right is that we tested in really small ways without worrying whether it was perfect, just to see whether was the style and the approach to career development that we were selling, was that something anyone was interested in buying and we, and we sort of tested quite a few things and loads of the time we'd not really thought it through we didn't wait for it to be perfect to test it but I'm so glad that we did it in a really incremental pragmatic non-glamorous way and I think that is probably the key to 
our success today is the fact that we did it so slowly. You know, that whole thing of, I'm not sure very many businesses are overnight successes. Sometimes if you only discover them after they've sort of grown and developed, that's how they can look on the surface. But certainly our experience has been, it's all about years of hard work, testing, trying, letting some stuff go, holding your ideas lightly but really figuring out, does that supply and demand meet? I just want to add to that, that point, what you just said about perfection and waiting for perfection. We mentor so many people that do that and they end up with kind of paralysis by analysis. They're analysing so much that they don't get started. And that is a major sticking point. And I think you have to get out there. You have to trial what you're doing. You have to go through that testing phase and not wait for it to be perfect because actually over time it gets better. And I'm sure even sometimes, and I don't know if you would agree with this, something I've done last year, I'm like, oh, actually, a year later, I could improve that. That could be a bit better. Why don't I do this, this and this? Because we're always learning and you're always progressing. And so if we waited to be perfect, we would never start anything. Just a one-liner, really. I won't add too much. And it's a simple thing that tomorrow is not promised. You know, life is very short. So let's take action on our dreams and let's take action today. I have this, and I've said it in the book, in the the book about this, um, my kind of deathbed analogy, right? And it sounds really morbid, but from a positive perspective, my thoughts are, I don't want to get to the end, whenever that is, and think, what if? What if I tried that? Could that have worked? Would that have worked? But it will be amazing if. (laughs) (laughs) I did something about it today. (laughs) So I think that is a very good point to talk about how much of our success is based on the people that we work with, particularly because all of us have chosen to work with people that we are very close to. I mean, you're married to each other. Sarah and I haven't married to each other, but... I feel like we may as well have. We spend so much time virtually and and in person and just minds are together all the time. How much do you think that success is based on who you choose to work with? And second question for you, when they're as close as you two are, have you got any tips so that that can continue to be a successful relationship? Great questions. Definitely partnerships are so important. And it's so important that you choose who you are going to work with very carefully. And when you're going through that process that you have clarity over who is responsible for what. And I think that sometimes is the problem. You join, you think, I've got a great idea, I'll just work with so and so, but you actually haven't really done a deep dive and a conversation in terms of how much time and commitment they're going to put in, how much are you going to put in, what are their roles and responsibilities and duties, what do they bring to the table, what do you bring to the table, and by having that conversation you then come together as a true partnership as opposed to both going off in different directions or one person um, is super fast and has lots of time to spend on it and is not working it right now and then they're really annoyed with the other person because the other person's got a full-time job, is doing it on the side and has five kids, right? And then that becomes a problem in the partnership. So I think it's so important to choose the right person that has the same vision or similar vision, ambition, passion and works in a similar way that you can work together well that you have clarity over the roles and responsibilities. And I think sometimes that should be written down. So there's that clarity. So you're not overlapping, you're not stepping on each other's toes. There's no annoyances and grievances as a result. And you have those regular checkpoints so that you are making sure you are on the same page and you're working together in the right way. Thanks. So the next one is the tips. Ah, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, do you know, we have a we have an excellent working relationship and an, also an excellent relationship, but bringing it to the kind of question in terms of finding business partners and partners, I think it's so hard to find someone that you enjoy working with and also that delivers what you're expecting. I've tried many, many, many partnerships and they don't always work. And then sometimes you're like, I'm just very careful now with who I want to work with. To kind of list it out, they have to bring something to the table other than their time. Uh, because I think sometimes people think, you know, I'm going to work hard and it's just not enough. So we need to really understand what that person or what both parties are bringing to the table. Me and Bianca have a rule in terms of how we make it work is a, it's a one man or one woman job. So, for example, with your email correspondence, you're, I see everything, I've read everything. But Bianca's the one who may respond. Whoever gets to that email first, it's your responsibility. Because what ends up happening is it's a one-person task, but both people end up doing the same task. And it's not required. This is yours. You get on with that. This is mine. I'll get on with that. And we come together. We'll share any information that's required. Or when I'm in bed with my laptop, Sheila, I can read through anything that I need to, to get on with. And, and that is a... a I mean, uh, that is the laptop's name. That is the laptop's name. <laughs> but definitely not yeah. making a one-man task a two-people task, I think yeah. is one of them. And then the other thing we do is, if there's a new project, because we're entrepreneurs, we wake up every day with a new idea, we'll sometimes say to each other, it's a crap idea, number one. But two, also, if it's an idea you want to pursue, okay, on your head be it. Yeah. Giving them the authority to try something new or to do something yeah. new without having to always come back to you. So you still have that feeling of independence whilst having that opportunity to collaborate a partner, yeah. I think is really important. So you have to trust the person to be creative, you're working with to be them, creative. Let them do yeah. what they want to do if they really like it. And sometimes we come to the table, we're like, okay, I've thought of this great idea. And like, I'm creating something new every five minutes, yeah. right? And then she'll be, she'll be like, hmm, mm. not sure about that. But then if I really like it, I'm like, I'm doing it anyway. Well, you'll see. <laughs> we'll soon see about that, right? But we allow each other to be creative and make yeah. mistakes. And, and we win together, we lose together. We finish all of our podcast interviews, all of our Ask the Expert interviews with the same question. And I'd love to hear from both of you because I'm sure you'll have different advice. But for our listeners, if you were going to share one piece of career advice with them, it can be your own advice. It can be words of wisdom that has been shared with you that you've just found really useful. What would it be? Byron, perhaps we'll come to you first and then let Bianca have the final word. Advice for somebody in a career. I would say this, but... I read a stat once, I don't know how up to date this stat is, but the stat said that 85% of people are unhappy in their job and their role. So let's just say that's give or take 5% because it was an older stat. And I think in life, the life that we have here, we spend, you know, a third of the time sleeping, a third of the time at work. And I think it's almost a crime for you to be unhappy whilst at work. So for me, career advice would be find the job you enjoy doing. And it's as simple as that because life is short and you're going to spend so much time there, you have to be happy. And that would be my advice. Be happy with what you do. If not, make a change or adapt. Mine is probably pretty obvious. I'm going to say personal branding and networking. <laughs> what a surprise. I think because I think it's so important that people recognise the power of their own personal profile. I think so often in a career you can get caught up with the organisation you work for and the big brand and have not taken the steps to appreciate how pivotal you are in your role and in your position within that organisation. So step forward 
build your personal brand, build those relationships and your credibility. You don't know how long you're going to be in that organisation. I think the pandemic has certainly proven that people were made redundant unexpectedly. So you can't just focus on your organisation as a whole. You need to focus on what you bring to the organisation and how you can build your credibility, your network to ensure that regardless of what happens, you have a really strong personal brand and profile. And people buy from people at the end of the day. So make sure you are using your light, your story, your experience to build who you are. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So thank you for listening to today's episode. Um, I hope you found it useful hearing from Bianca and Byron. And if you're interested to learn more, please do check out their book, The Business Survival Kit. And that's full of stories, examples, and even more practical tools and ideas. And we're going to finish today's episode with the opportunity for you to hear from one of the uncertainty experts so you can really get a feel for what the uncertainty expert learning experience is all about. And it's a great opportunity to borrow some brilliance from people that you might not normally get the opportunity to learn from. So I'd really recommend investing two extra minutes of your time to hear what they've got to say. Hello, I'm Catherine Templin-Lewis and I'm the lead scientist on the uncertainty experts. Dr. Vivian Ming experienced near suicidal depression and homelessness, but like all the uncertainty experts, she used the strategies she learned in the shadows to become a leading light. Dr. Ming went through gender transition, began a family, and is now a world-leading computational neuroscientist, CEO, founder, and author. How do you reconcile the fact that uh, in the 80s and 90s, I was flunking out of school and ended up homeless, and uh, in the 2000s, I've published papers in, in Nature and founded uh, half a dozen companies uh, and invented a bunch of first things that never existed before. One of the clearest things that my life says, I hope to many students, but anyone is failure is an option. Uh, you know, if you're, whatever we're talking about, the, the SATs or your A-levels or whatever it might be, there's no failure so bad you can't come back from it. Uh, so that's, I hope, one thing that my life is testament to, which is I failed 
at a truly spectacular level, and yet have come back and had the opportunity to contribute something meaningful to the world. Here, Dr. Ming reminds us of the importance of failure being an option. It's a psychological social conditioning to fear failure. In our pilot series, 80% of participants named failure as one of their major fears, and yet 90% admitted that the thing that scares them the most is the regret of missed opportunity. Without risking failure, we never give ourselves a chance to really succeed. We need to cognitively reframe failure. And what's more is that our fears are highly biased. Our brain is programmed with a negativity bias that means we put far more focus on negative outcomes and lose sight of possible good ones, which creates a limited mindset. In fact, a recent Science Foundation survey showed that of our 60,000 thoughts a day, 85% were negative. But of those worries, only 1-3% to ever came true. And of those that did, 79% were handled far better than expected. Once you learn how to recognise your negativity bias and weigh failure up against the cost of never trying, embracing uncertainty suddenly becomes a far more appealing option. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.